Thank you, uh, Tobin, for uh, giving your testimony this morning. Also, thank you, Paul, for the impossible task of presenting in times uh, in 10 minutes or less. So he did a great job. I hope you had a good overview. If you have other questions, please see the expanded affirmation document, the elder affirmation document, and you'll be able to read up on that. And I'm sure it will present you with some questions and ask Paul your questions. No, you can ask uh, any of us your questions because as elders, we have the answer to every question as long as we can say, I don't know. And uh, so we will hopefully together be growing in Christ together. Uh, Last week, our daughter Angela and her two girls were with us. She's a mother of a three-year-old, three-and-a-half, almost four-year-old, and a two-year-old, almost two years old. And as I watched the activity of a young mother taking care of those girls, uh, it really is a 24-7 job. As those of you who have little ones now or had little ones previously, you know that it is a great challenge. Angela, before she got married, she got married later in life, but she uh, would run marathons. She trained for marathons and was quite a runner. But I recognized that her biggest marathon was keeping track of the three-year-old and the two-year-old. And uh, after they left, after several days with us, I had to lay down and take a nap. That's how that was for me. And I thought, wow, that is why parenthood is for the young, uh, the energy that's necessary and needed for that. But that whole idea of marathon and running, uh, I'm interested in reading the news reports about the Boston Marathon and some of the other marathons. And some of you perhaps have trained for marathons. But uh, I just read an article about a young lady who had signed up to do a 5K. Uh, She's 12 years old. Her name is Leanne Rodriguez. And, uh, you know, running a half marathon is quite an an accomplishment for anybody who's trained. That's 13.1 miles, I think. Uh, But this 12-year-old, Leanne, she'd only signed up for a 5K, which is 3.1 miles, and that's what she had trained for. She arrived late at the starting line, and uh, the runners were ready and taking off, and she thought she was late, so she took off with them. And after about five miles, she realized this was the half marathon race. But she decided just to keep on going. And according to the news write-up, Rodriguez realized about halfway through that she was in the wrong race, but she decided that she might as well just finish. And uh, so you and I as Christians, in fact, the Apostle Paul uses those athletic metaphors about running the race and finishing well. And uh, for you and I, uh, life is not meant to be laid back and not necessarily easy. Uh, Maybe you're here today and you said you signed up for the 5K and yet you find yourself running a full marathon. And uh, maybe you're a little bit tired and your feet are dragging. And uh, the circumstances of your life, perhaps, are quite difficult or adverse at this moment. Another story out of a marathon was there was an Ohio couple. They were engaged to be married, and uh, they had their wedding ceremony at the starting line of a marathon, of a half marathon. They took their vows. They were in their race attire, although he had a bow tie on, and she had a short veil. And then the race started, and they took off as a couple, They kissed and took off and gave each other a high five, and they left with 3,000 other runners. And it's kind of a quirky ceremony, and and yet it serves as a reminder and really a metaphor of marriage, doesn't it? Because we put a lot of effort into the wedding day without realizing the marathon that is beyond the wedding day called marriage. 
you know, uh, the wedding days are beautiful, they're great, but then there is that long run called marriage in the marathon. And it involves, uh, you know, not in my marriage, but sometimes it involves strain, <laughs> fatigue, and pain. And I'm the cause of all of that. Uh, but the journey is worth it. Uh, you know, it's really worth it. And then uh, a final story out of the marathon is, this is, comes from the Boston Marif Marathon, the recent one, and there were some 27,000 runners there. Now, why in the world you'd want to do that is beyond me. I get in a crowd of five people, and I'm ready to flee. But one of those runners, she's 72 years old, Fran Drodes, I think is how I pronounce her name. Uh, she crossed the finish line the day it started at 8.45 p.m., the day of the race. She came in last out of 26,639 who completed the race before her. And so we would look at her and say, wow, she's a loser, you know. <laughs> she didn't do very well, but she has run more than 75 marathons in her lifetime. And she ran the Boston Marathon this year for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Her husband, who is currently battling cancer himself for the third time, met her with a medal at the finish line. Earlier in the day, he had called the police thinking, because he hadn't seen her, that she'd gotten lost or hurt. Uh, but it turns out that Fran, this uh, so-called last finisher, this loser, was actually really first in what she was doing. And, uh, you know, my approach to marathons and to running is really based upon former President Calvin Coolidge's words facing the 1928 elect presidential election where he said, I choose not to run. And that's my philosophy about running. I used to be a runner, but uh, not anymore. But you know, you and I, uh, we may choose not to run in a real marathon or a half marathon or even a 5K. And yet, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are running the race of faith and that it is a marathon. It's not a sprint, as uh, they so wisely say, but it's a marathon and it goes on every day for as long as you live, whether your life is relatively short or relatively long. My mother, who is still alive, is 94, and she's still running the marathon with her walker, you know, down the hallway. Don's mother is, uh, what, 89? 89. Still running the race. And so how do you choose to run the race? You know, it is, can be tiring, exhausting, and yet exhilarating at the same time. That's why I love to call the Christian life an adventure. And yet each one of us has a set of circumstances. We have a set of happenings in our lives. And if we went around this room and took the time, I'm sure we would be here all day, but each one of us could tell us something about the happenings in our lives, the circumstances which could be great and exhilarating or wearying, fatiguing, perhaps even quite terrible. And all of us in the human condition face those things. And so, how are you running the race? How are you doing this morning? How is it going? Perhaps difficult and impossible circumstances you're facing. And I'd encourage you to take your smartphone, your tablet, or if you're like me, a traditionalist, a real book, and turn to the letter of Philippians. We're in the midst of, uh, I'm doing a series uh, 
which is really not a series. These are messages that don't fit into any series. And uh, so it's kind of an interlude between what we normally do, which is exposit through a book of the Bible, explain a whole book of the Bible. Uh, so these are just some opportunities to look at some things that have been on my heart and life uh, over the last several weeks and months. And last week we looked at the value of brokenness or the value of broken things and uh, how God has designed broken things and how he uses them in his sovereignty uh, to accomplish his goals and his will. And, of course, we don't see that uh, from this side of the veil all the time. Sometimes we get a glimpse of how God uses in a graceful way the brokenness of our lives and difficulties. And today we are going to talk about our circumstances, and some of you may have circumstances which leave you in a broken situation. And we come to this uh, little letter of Philippians, uh, probably as J. Vernon McGee said, the great radio preacher, my favorite book of the Bible. Of course, if you listen to him enough, every book is his favorite book of the Bible. And uh, so don't let him fool you. J. Vernon McGee was quite a Hebrew scholar, a graduate of Dallas Seminary. But in his down-home way, he has communicated during his lifetime and continues to do so, the truths of God's word. And so we come this morning to the letter of Philippians, and we'll just look at a few verses here as we continue. But what I want to focus on is uh, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's writing from a Roman prison. He is in Rome. He's in prison. So we would suggest that his circumstances are not a club med kind of situation. Uh, he is there in this Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day as they would uh, rotate through. And yet he says in verse 12, Now I want you to know. That is a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses elsewhere many times to emphasize something that, you know, this is like giant exclamation marks that he wants us to know. And he's writing to the Philippians, and then by extension, by apostolic extension, by the word of God coming to us, he wants you to know. He wants me to know. And he goes on to say, I want you to know, brethren, and that's a gender-inclusive term. The sisters aren't left out. So we want you to know, Christians, that my circumstances, that my circumstances, he wants them to know. He announces this topic in verse 12, but he continues with his theme throughout this letter of Philippians. And he says here that my circumstances or my happenings, we talk about our happenings in life, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, you wouldn't think that his circumstances would have turned out that way because he's imprisoned, he's chained to Roman guards. And what does he mean, my circumstances? He says, I want you to know. Well, the only way to understand that is briefly turn back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And if you want to know in detail all of these circumstances that the Apostle Paul is referring back to, read the end of Acts, verse chapters 20 through 28, and you will see what the Apostle Paul meant here in Philippians by his happenings, his circumstances. Look in chapter 20 of, of the book of Acts, and beginning in verse 24, let me see if I've got this right here. Uh, no, verse 22 of chapter 20, where he says, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and now uh, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course, that the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus is to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Really, this is the Apostle Paul's central mission, is to proclaim and testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What a great central purpose of life. But he gets three warnings. If you look at your copy of Scripture, many copies of Scripture have little headings above the paragraphs. And if you have those in your Bible, if you don't, they're very helpful sometimes, and they vary from version to version because these are not inspired Scripture, but they are put in there by the Bible editors to help us understand what the central theme is of the following paragraph. Technically, they're called pericopes, pericopes. Now, this is free. This is just an aside, but I want you to use that word in a, in a sentence this next week. You know, like, uh, you know, I went to the doctor and my pericopes had flamed up and he had to surgically remove them. Or we went out to lunch, had a wonderful dinner with a side of pericope salad. Or you can use it correctly and say, my New International Version does not have as many pericopes as my New American Standard Bible. And uh, so that's what these are. So there you go. You've got a technical word to use, which you'll never use again in your whole life. So there. And uh, it, it's worth what you paid for it, by the way. But just so you know, just so you know. But we see in my Bible, which I use the New American Standard Bible, in chapter 21, we see that Paul sails from Miletus. There's three warnings in that chapter. And then he goes to Jerusalem. In fact, he's been warned three times not to go to Jerusalem because uh, people know that he's going to be arrested there. He's going to be persecuted, if not killed, for his faith. And then in chapter 21, about verse 27, he's seized in the temple by the Asiatic Jews, and he's arrested. And uh, so he's, he's suffering this. In verse chapter 22, he makes a defense before the Jewish people that are gathered there in the Temple Mount. Chapter 23, he's before the council, the Jewish council, giving a defense of his ministry and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a conspiracy to kill him in chapter 23, 12. He's moved to Caesarea over on the coast. He remains there for a couple of years. He's before the governor, Felix, in chapter 25, before Festus, and then finally before King Agrippa in 25:26, He makes a defense before Agrippa. Then he's sent to Rome because he is a Roman citizen, and his right was to appeal to Caesar for a, 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 a fair trial as a Roman citizen. So they send him to Rome, and uh, he experiences shipwreck along the way, almost dies. He's safe at Malta, and finally he arrives in Rome where he awaits in prison. So we see very quickly when he goes back in Philippians here and says, I want you to know that my circumstances, he's looking back over the last few years and thinking about that he wanted to always go to Rome. In fact, we know that uh, Paul said in uh, Acts 19.21, after I've been in Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. Rome was the center of the empire. Rome was the urban hub of the then known world and Paul knew that if he got to Rome and was able to share the gospel it would impact the then known world which he did anyway because he did get to Rome just not as he was thinking he would get there from Corinth in Romans 1:15, he writes so as much as is in me I am eager ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also 
He wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. Instead, as Warren Wiersbe said, he went as a prisoner. His circumstances were not as he imagined. Isn't that like life? And so we see that through these circumstances, he was illegally arrested. The trials were not done correctly. He was not cared for as a Roman citizen should have been. The deceit, the malpractice, the vilification of his character that surrounded him were past belief, if you read those chapters in Acts. And yet he looks back here in Philippians and asserts that what has happened to me, my happenings, have really served to advance the gospel. And he appeals to Caesar and is sent to Rome and experiences shipwreck. And nevertheless, he's still imprisoned. He's still chained. He's still unheard. He's uncertain. He looks back and declares, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Henry David Thoreau and Walden wrote these words, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. What he's writing about is when the happenings of our lives, the circumstances overwhelm us. And we have a difficult time dealing with them. Sometimes, just as Paul had literal chains chained to a Roman prisoner, it did not stop him from advancing the gospel. In fact, he was chained here. He says the whole Praetorian Guard and everybody else heard the gospel. Can you imagine being chained to Paul for three or four hours at a time? Can you imagine that? You would hear the gospel. And so this rotation of Praetorian Guard, which were Caesar's basically private honor guard who cared for these prisoners or who watched over them while they were in prison, and Paul spread the gospel right into Caesar's household. And by that also we see in this book of Philippians that the other brethren were encouraged, even in the midst of this persecution of the apostle, they were encouraged to speak with boldness. And so the Apostle Paul recognizes that even though his circumstances were not as he imagined, they were very desperate and terrible. In fact, he's heading towards martyrdom uh, on the Appian Way, most likely. And so he says uh, they have served to advance the gospel. Do we look at our circumstances that way? You know, each one of us has a set of chains, uh, in a sense, because we cannot necessarily change those circumstances in our lives that surprise us. You know, when you analyze your life, I don't know, my life might be different, but there's very little I'm in control of, very little. And the circumstances sweep into our lives. Uh, And even Christians are upset about this election year, and we're wondering, ooh, what's going to happen? And uh, we go back here, and Paul has some instruction for us. And Paul says that... uh, This has served for greater progress of the gospel. In fact, it's a military term that's used there, this furtherance. It's like a pioneer advance. It's a Greek military term. It refers to the advance team of army engineers who go before the troops even reach the battle to prepare the way so they can get in there. Paul discovered that his current circumstances, his happenings, served to open up new areas of ministry like he had never imagined before. And so in your life and my life, each one of us, in a sense, has that chain, whatever it is of our circumstance. How does that increase the level of your faith? How does that increase what God is doing in and through you to your family, to relatives, to friends, to coworkers, schoolmates, and on and on? Uh, Wherever you find yourself, how does that work? How is that working?
Well, the Apostle Paul has some instructions for us. If our life circumstances seem to be holding us back from joy and happiness, uh, our hearts cry for release from these unpleasant and difficult things, these happenings in our lives, what's the answer? How can we find in the midst of the circumstances, which we have no control over, joy and happiness in the midst of those things? How do we do that? The Apostle Paul has some instructions for us. Over here in chapter 1, in verse 20, 20, uh, let's see, 27, uh, he writes there, he says, Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith. Whatever happens, he says, stand firm. Whatever happens, stand firm. In verse 27, tells us how we stand firm. He tells us, whatever happens, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word translated conduct there is a political term, and it basically means live as citizens. And this resonated with the people of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony settled primarily by uh, Roman soldiers who were retired. And so they understood what it meant to be a citizen of a nation, of an empire. They understood these things. And Paul said, live as a citizen. And he tells us to conduct yourselves in a manner, how? Worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And down there where he says, whatever happens, stand firm. He's, excuse me, he says, in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith, embracing a common cause, one spirit, one man for the faith, It's a picture of an athletic team. One of the things I've recognized, especially in our day and age, where there are more and more people who disavow church affiliation, and yet they still say they're followers of Christ, it's difficult to stand alone. And the picture here, that the military metaphor, of course, is of the Romans and the way they did battle. They they formed these units, these teams that would face all directions and interlock their legs and their shields and they could stand against the onslaught of the enemy. If you're out there alone as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is very difficult to stand firm when you're assaulted by the world's values, by the world's ways, and by things that come into your life, your circumstances. It is difficult. Also, you need a cause greater than yourself. You know, we're all uh, penchant to think about ourselves only. And yet, when we're in a cause that's greater than ourselves, we can stand firm in the midst of your happenings, in the midst of your circumstances. So whatever happens, the Apostle Paul says, stand firm in that. Secondly, the other thing he is teaching us is whatever happens, press on. Whatever happens, press on. Look at verse verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Pressing on, that has the idea of endurance and perseverance in the Christian faith. Paul is talking about that in the midst of saying in the first part of chapter 3 that everything that he valued before he became a Christian was of loss. It was no good. It was like waste to him. He had to let it go. It wasn't who he was. It was only Christ back up there in verse 10, I may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's release of everything that he valued 
for the cause of Christ. In the midst of his circumstances, he says, whatever happens, press on. Some of you may recognize the name of Rhonda Rousey. Ronda Rousey, she is a, one of the Sports Illustrated called her the world's most dominant athlete. And uh, she has had quite a run for a while. She's the first U.S. woman to ever win an Olympic medal in, medal in judo, the youngest woman to ever qualify for the Olympics at age 14, and consistently one of the top three ranked judo champions in the world before transitioning to mixed martial arts. No, I do not pay 20 bucks to watch mixed martial arts. But she's been in the news, and it's an interesting story. And she's what, a young woman of 29, I think. She's accomplished a lot. She quickly dominated mixed martial arts and became world champion. That was going on to November of last year. She was 12-0 and 0 as an MMA fighter, as they call them. And she's the only, and, and only one fighter who challenged her survived the first round. She would put them out in less than a minute. And then last November, she lost badly. Uh, you may have seen the news reports of that. In an interview shortly after her devastating loss, she said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And at that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. Boy, talk about a performance orientation. Her whole identity was inseparable from her image as the most dominant athlete in the world. Without this, if she couldn't be that person, if she couldn't have this identity, if she couldn't be known as being this type of person, she was nothing. She was good for nothing. She was unlovable. Wow. You know, the danger, though, is all of us identify with something that we're good at. And the Apostle Paul was good at being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. He knew the law. He was well-educated. He persecuted Christians, and yet when God took him on the Damascus Road and opened his eyes, when Jesus Christ brought him to salvation, he recognized all of that was as dung. It was waste. And he didn't want to kill himself, as Ronda Rousey did. He presses on in verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay a hold of that for which I was laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell them, let us therefore... As many as are perfect have this attitude. In light of Paul's uh, presentation about the consummation of the age, the end-time scenario in Scripture, that doesn't mean we just sell all our stuff and go hide out on a mountain waiting for the rapture because we are to occupy until he comes. We are to be involved as the Apostle Paul. Believe me, the Apostle Paul believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ his whole life. And yet he did not sit on a mountaintop. He did not go away and ignore his life. Whatever happens, press on, he says. Why do we press on? Clear back in verse 3, there are four distinctives of a Christian. In chapter 3, verse 3, he declares that we are the true circumcision. And he's relating that in contrast to false teachers and those who would put binders upon Christians. 
And he says, we are the true circumcision. Remember in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of belonging to the covenant people of God. And the Apostle Paul uses that image here that we are the true circumcision. We are the ones who've had our hearts changed, circumcised, if you will, and made new because of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we worship in the Spirit of God. We worship in the Spirit of God. You know, that is our primary calling is to be worshipers. You may have great skills in your life. You may have great passions in your life for different ministries, and that's all good. That's the diversity of the body of Christ. And yet we are called to be worshipers. Thirdly, we glory in Christ Jesus. Boy, this is, this is something that stopped me for a moment. What do I glory in? Okay? What are the things that I really glorify in my life? Do I glory in Christ Jesus? That is the mark or the distinctive of a Christian. And fourthly, we put no confidence in the flesh. Who? Now he's gone from preaching to meddling, right? You know, because we live in this thing called the flesh, and it's not been redeemed yet, by the way. It has its sinful passions and desires, and yet the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. And when we put confidence in the flesh, that's when trouble begins. And so those distinctives lead up to this idea of we press on. If you remember nothing else, remember this week, I'm pressing on to the glory of God. I'm pressing on because I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm pressing on because I want to worship in the Spirit of God. I'm pressing on because I want to glorify Christ Jesus. I'm pressing on because this flesh will betray me and fail me when push comes to shove. So whatever happens, stand firm, the Apostle Paul says. Whatever happens, press on, the Apostle Paul tells us and encourages us. And then in chapter 4, he says, whatever happens, rejoice. If you've studied Philippians, you know that's one of the oft-used words of the Apostle Paul, rejoice. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Here's this guy sitting chained to this Praetorian guard, and uh, these guys were like uh, you know, Hulk Hogan or something. They were the best of the best of the Roman Empire. And here he is, the Apostle Paul, aging and physically broken, and yet sharing with them. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Just as Paul was saying, he's imminent. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And look what happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is that peace we all long for. This is the peace the world longs for. Except most do not understand that it is attainable. It is a gift from knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. Whatever happens, rejoice. Pastor and author Alan Redpath uh, wrote these words, and I quote him. There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ and right through to me. If it has become that, if it has come that far, Redpath goes on to say, it has come with a great purpose which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to Him and accept that it is coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart. No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. 
unquote. If we could get our heads wrapped around the biblical truth of the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is defined as God is working all things out everywhere and all times and all places, all things for his glory and for the good of his people. When you lay your head down on a pillow at night, refer to that, to God's sovereignty. We don't understand that because even this week, I, I, I had last week or two, I've had conversations with four different families about difficulty with aging parents and struggling with aging parents. Those are circumstances that we don't choose, we don't like. I've told Angela that when I'm at that place, just put me in my pickup and put it in gear and send me out over the plains, you know. She doesn't like to hear that. But. And I've talked to two other families who've lost loved ones or relatives in their families to really terrible circumstances. Do I really believe God is good? One of my favorite accounts is of the missionary. Uh, his last name is Gardner. He was at the southern tip of South America in the 1890s. I've told you this before many times, but uh, he died of deprivation and starvation, lack of support from anybody in the world. He had a journal, of course, a diary, and his final words, uh, barely legible as he wrote them out, was, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Whatever happens, stand firm. Whatever happens, press on. Whatever happens, rejoice. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your people, for your grace. And each one of us have a set of circumstances. And Heavenly Father, you know all about those things. You know exactly, even though perhaps we have not told anyone anything about what we're facing, you know it. And Lord, may we be overwhelmed with your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.